Well, good morning. So my name is Mike Osborne. I'm the first of this string of preachers that you're going to have this month. Um, one of your members told me that if I don't preach well, he's going to beat me up after the service today. So I've never been given such a warm welcome as that. A <laughs> uh, little bit about me. I come from Orlando, where I'm the dean of students at Reformed Theological Seminary. So if any of you have entertained the idea of getting some uh, education, either toward being a pastor, a church planter, a missionary, a counselor, something like that, I'd love to talk to you about RTS. Uh, I've been there about three years, and before that, I was a pastor in a church in this presbytery for about 18 years, and then before that, another church in this presbytery back in the 1990s. So I've become very familiar with uh, many of the people that were f forming this church. Um, I knew Dan Henley well, for those of you that used to go to Covenant Palm Bay. Um, so my roots are deep. And it's just a real joy. I had no idea that so many people are coming here to New City Church. And God is obviously at work in your midst, bringing people to Jesus and giving you greater and greater love for him and using you to reach and impact this community. So God bless you. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. And I love to uh, preach the gospel. And I want to bring to you a story that actually is probably my favorite story in the Bible, but it's one that is rather obscure. A lot of people have never heard of Mephibosheth, uh, and I'm going to be saying that name a lot this morning, so you're going to have to con forgive me if I stumble over that tongue twister of a name. So turn with me in your Bible, if you have one, to 2 Samuel chapter 9 in the Old Testament, and the passage will be up here on the screen as well. We're going to read um, <clears throat> pretty much the whole chapter. It's not terribly long. Second Samuel chapter 9 in the Old Testament. So listen as I read God's word. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look in this passage of scripture. Father, how thankful we are to you that as has been said many times this morning, you are our good, good father. We thank you that we belong to you as sons and daughters through faith in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that it's not because of our goodness that you have chosen us, but surely out of your grace and mercy. And so as your sons and daughters, we come to you to ask your Holy Spirit to use this passage of Scripture to draw us nearer to yourself and to reveal the glory of Christ, that we might become like him, love him, and serve him more faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You know, sometimes people just need to know that they matter. People need to know that they matter matter. Have you ever gotten a text or an email or a phone call from somebody and just out of the blue and they say something like, I just wanted you to know that I'm thinking about you today. Or some message that wasn't prompted by anything you did or said. Somebody just popped up and said, hey, I just want you to know I love you. I'm thinking about you. You're in my prayers. That kind of message really communicates that you matter to someone, doesn't it? And people need to know that they matter. I was sitting in a restaurant not long ago having lunch, and I overheard a conversation between two women at the table next to me. One said to the other, you never answer my texts. When you don't answer my texts, it's not like you're saying that the texts aren't important. It makes me feel like I'm not important. That was a pretty heavy conversation. But true words. People need to know that they matter, that they have been seen, that someone recognizes them, that someone thinks they're important. C.S. Lewis, in an essay that he wrote one time called The Weight of Glory, said that we all have a longing to be acknowledged, to be on the inside of some door that we've always seen from the outside. He said that when someone acknowledges you, when they communicate that you matter, it's like the healing of an old ache. Now, I don't know... Really, any of you, I've met you some by name this morning, but I don't know you, but I do know that you and I have this one thing in common, at least. 
we all share that old ache. That ache to be known and seen and recognized by somebody. Especially God, right? See, because the longing to be known and loved and accepted and seen by God is the greatest of all human longings. Perhaps you've heard what St. Augustine wrote in book one of his confessions. It's kind of a it's become kind of a famous saying by Augustine. He said, You, Lord, have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Well, this story this morning, 2 Samuel 9, is going to tell us how to find our rest in God and to know that we truly matter to Him. That's why I'm so excited to share this story with you. Now, obviously, we jumped right into the middle of a long story about King David. So uh, for those of you who are a little bit mystified by what's going on here in this chapter, let me give you the context. Um, you might have heard the name of Saul. Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. And Saul is now dead and gone. But David is now the king of Israel. And all of Israel is behind David. He passed his first 100 days in office with flying colors. His administration's approval rating is very high, possibly as high as 100%. The Ark of the Covenant is where it should be in Jerusalem, and David has subdued his enemies. He's appointed all of his advisors. His cabinet is in place. And in the previous chapter, it says that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So it's morning in Israel, right here in 2 Samuel 9. And at this good point, most monarchs of the world would get their domestic and foreign policies all put together, you know. But David does something very unusual. He calls in one of the late King Saul's servants, whose name was Ziba. And David says to him in verse 3, Is, this, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. Now that word kindness is really super important. It means grace or mercy, unmerited love and favor. And it's the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. Very important word for you to remember this morning. We're going to see it quite a bit. But I want you to notice in verse 3 that it's not just human kindness that David wants to show someone. It's the kindness of God. David wants to pass along not just his kindness, but the favor and grace and unmerited mercy of God. And Ziba says to David there in verses 3 and 4, Well, yes, there is this one orphan in Saul's family. He's living in Debar in the home of Machir. His name's Mephibosheth. So if you're making an outline this morning, I want to talk about three things. A mangled man, a kind king, and a gracious God. A mangled man, a kind king, and a gracious God. And as we go through this together, I think you'll find out how very much you matter to God. So let's talk first about Mephibosheth, this mangled man. When I say that he's mangled, what I mean is that he's very broken. 
He's very broken. He has a number of strikes against him. So let me walk you through the number of strikes that are against this mangled man. First of all, think about his name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a tough name to have, right? Anybody in here want to name your little, little baby Mephibosheth? Probably not. But do you know what it means? It's a difficult name to translate into English. Scholars have kind of stumbled over a little bit. It basically means one who scatters shame or perhaps from the mouth of the shameful thing. Depends on what scholar you are reading. But the, wor the, the word shame is built into the name, Mephibosheth. How would you like the word shame as part of your name? Imagine what it was like growing up with a name like from the mouth of the shameful thing. Shame was part of this poor man's identity. It was a theme of his life. Secondly, think about his family. Mephibosheth was the only son of Jonathan, who you might know was David's best friend. But he was King Saul's grandson. Saul was a disgraced, ungodly man. So Mephibosheth would be forever branded as the grandson of unfaithful Saul, someone who had merited only the curse of God. Furthermore, Mephibosheth's parents had both been murdered by the Philistines. The Philistines were the perennial enemies of the people of Israel. So Mephibosheth was an orphan. He had no home of his own. He was staying at the home of this friend of of his called Machir, um, who lived in a town on the other side of the Jordan River, the town called Lodabar. Now that's another Hebrew name you need to know what it means. Literally, it means no thing. Lo, no. Debar, thing. No thing. Put those two things together. Nothing. Uh, Mephibosheth was living in a town called Nothing. You know, just out of curiosity, I wondered when I was studying this passage if there are any odd names of towns here in America. And there really are. There's actually a place called Nothing, Arizona. It's an abandoned ghost town now, apparently. There's a town in Kentucky called Disappointment. There's a town in Michigan called Hell. And in Minnesota, there's a town called Embarrass. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from hell. <laughs> I'm from disappointment. If you'd asked Mephibosheth where he was from, he would say, I'm from nothing. Thirdly, think about Mephibosheth's poverty. Verse 7 of this text indicates that he had lost everything. He had no land, no house, no servants, no crops. All of the property that he had had as a descendant of King Saul had been confiscated. So he had nothing to offer David. Nothing in his hands could he bring. His accounts were all overdrawn. If there had been food stamps back in that day, Mephibosheth would have been on them. He was penniless, in other words. And then finally... Think about Mephibosheth's disability. This is pretty much the most obvious thing in this chapter about Mephibosheth that sort of sets him apart. 
In verse 3, we find out that Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. Now, to understand the history of that, you'd have to look back at 2 Samuel chapter 4. You would see what happened. And what happened is that when Mephibosheth was five years old, his nurse or his nanny accidentally dropped him. She was running away from the Philistines who had killed Saul and Jonathan, and she dropped Mephibosheth, probably running fast, tripped over a root or a rock or something like that, dropped him, and Mephibosheth's legs became permanently damaged. Now you say, well, that's too bad. No, that was very bad. Because to be lame in this time period was to be considered unclean spiritually. So not only was Mephibosheth sort of considered different physically, but he was unclean in the people's minds in the sight of God. Back in this time period, lame animals were unacceptable to be offered as sacrifices. Lame people could never serve as priests because of their disability. In the New Testament, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, you find out that he spent lots and lots of his time with people who were blind and lame and lepers and the poor and the homeless. People who were considered unclean, unworthy. And Mephibosheth would have been one of those people. So see, there was a stigma attached to folks like Mephibosheth. That's why the author of this book feels the need to underscore Mephibosheth's disability when he ends the chapter in verse 13 with these eight words, now he was lame in both his feet. It's almost like the author summarized everybody's opinion of Mephibosheth with those eight words. Now he was lame in both his feet. I suspect that when children, honest though unkind they be, saw Mephibosheth walking by, they would make fun of him and call him names. I remember when I was a kid, polio was a thing. Uh, there was a kid named Billy that went to my school, and he had polio. He had braces on both of his legs. He sat in a wheelchair most of the time. And to my shame, I tell you, we called him names. Crip. Look, there's Crip. And I suspect the same was happening to Mephibosheth. So when David asks Ziba if there were any descendants of Saul to whom he could show the kindness of God, you can imagine how Ziba probably answered that question with something like, well, yeah, there's this disabled guy called Mephibosheth, but you don't want him, do you? It's no wonder Mephibosheth calls himself in verse 8 a dead dog. How about that for one's self-image? <laughs> I'm nothing but a dead dog. He's been labeled and bullied and insulted all his life. His family is hated by all Israel. He's poor, he's homeless, and he's physically disabled on top of all that. 
but. <laughs> That's my favorite word in the Bible, by the way. But. Mephibosheth matters to somebody. He matters to King David. This mangled man matters to a kind king. So let's talk about David, this kind king in 2 Samuel chapter 9. What does David do uh, toward Mephibosheth? Well, six things. Let me run through them quickly with you. First of all, he, he pursues Mephibosheth. He pursues him. He seeks him out individually. Notice verse 1 where David says to Ziba, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed, kindness, mercy, unmerited favor for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Verse 5, Bring him to me. You see how David is relentlessly pursuing this man, despite the roadblocks that Ziba puts up. You don't want him, bring him to me. David seeks him out. He pursues him. Second, David calls him by name. Notice verse 6. It says, And Mephibosheth came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, one word, Mephibosheth. Isn't it great when someone remembers your name? Uh, a few weeks ago, I went to my high school 50th reunion. Yeah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was my fear as I went to this little town in South Carolina where I'm from. 50th high school reunion. One of my big fears was nobody that I know will be there, and the people that are there won't know who I am. But what a relief it was. I must not look too different. I mean, my hair has changed quite a bit. But when I walked in the, the big meeting room, I heard again and again, Mike, Mike, glad you're here. It's so great when somebody remembers your name. There's just something about that that communicates that you matter. The third thing we see about David is that he reassures Mephibosheth. He not only pursues him and calls him by name, but he reassures Mephibosheth in verse 7. Look at that verse. It says, David says, do not fear, do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. See, I suspect that Mephibosheth thought that he was possibly going to be executed as a traitor. Right? I mean, he represents the last of the line of ungodly Saul. David needs to get rid of the old regime and move forward, right? And so Mephibosheth, as he comes into this room, is afraid that perhaps he's going to be punished, perhaps executed, perhaps imprisoned, if not killed. But instead of killing Mephibosheth, the fourth thing we see is David restores his lost fortunes. He pursues him, he calls him by name, he reassures him, and he restores his lost fortunes. Look again at verse 7, where David says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now look, this was risky for David to do. Giving back Saul's land that had been taken away might have encouraged Mephibosheth to try and take the throne. But David takes that risk. He takes that gamble. 
Not only that, he also ordered Ziba in verse 10 to wait on Mephibosheth hand and foot. Fifth, not only these things, but here is a really key thing that he does for Mephibosheth. He brings him into the royal family. That is to say that David adopts this man. This mangled man, he adopts him. Look with me at verse 7 once again where David says, You shall eat at my table always. And in verse 11, it says that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. See, back in this time period in Israel, to eat with somebody, to be brought to the table of somebody, was symbolic of intimate relationship. Now, we've sort of lost this a little bit, but you know it when you invite your family and friends into your home for a special event like Thanksgiving or Christmas or July 4th or something. A meal together for David to do this was a sign of intimate relationship, a sign of friendship, of trust, and of covenant love. And this is not just anybody's table, mind you. This is the table of the king, the mightiest sovereign in the ancient world. This was an unparalleled honor, folks. It was outrageous for David to bring Mephibosheth into his dining room and let him be one of the king's sons. And then finally, sixth, David keeps Mephibosheth as his son. He keeps him. The emphasis is on permanency. Verse 7, you shall eat at my table always. Verse 10, Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. And verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always. See, when you see these words again and again and again like this, there's something important going on. David is ensuring the security of this mangled man. He is displaying the kindness of God to him by reassuring him, by restoring his fortunes, by saying his name, by pursuing him like he does, by keeping him as his son always. Mephibosheth's future is secure. Now, we've looked at the story. Now we ask, is this just a story about a great man named David and a poor man named Mephibosheth? I know you know otherwise. I know the preaching that goes on here at New City Church is always about a bigger story, right? A story over a story. And that story that this, this story points to is the story about a gracious God. So we've seen a mangled man, a kind king, and now let's talk about this gracious God because this story should remind you of the gospel, it is not just about David's kindness toward Mephibosheth, but the grace of David toward Mephibosheth points forward to a far greater grace that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. See, for those of you who are followers of Jesus this morning, before you became a Christian, and now maybe you don't remember when that was, perhaps some of you uh, were believers from a very young age. Maybe you can't remember a time when you didn't know and love Jesus Christ. And I hope that would be true of many of you. But there was a time before you knew him 
that you were outside the family of God. You were one who scatters shame. You were a sinner, lost and without hope. Because, you know, the Bible says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You were, the Bible says, a child of the devil became you before you became a child of God. You were an enemy combatant of God, a sinner by birth and by choice. You were, you might even want to say, from low debar. <laughs> you had no thing, nothing to offer God. All of your righteous acts, the Bible says, were like filthy rags before him. You lived outside the land of promise. You were far away from God, depending on yourself to get by, instead of depending on God, which is what all human beings should do. And you were crippled spiritually. No, wait a minute. You weren't just crippled. <laughs> the Bible says you were dead spiritually. Dead. So was I before Jesus Christ came into my life. We were, before Jesus came to us, dead spiritually, unable to please God, unable to save ourselves, and unclean in His sight. Unless God came to you, you would have never gone to God. So your name was Mephibosheth. You were a hopeless, unwanted, sinful orphan. And so was I. But... <laughs> There's that word again, that wonderful word in the Bible. But one day, God called you to himself. If you're a Christian this morning, he pursued you in Jesus. You, individually. He knew you before the foundation of the world. And he pursued you at a point in time in your life. You may not be able to remember it, but he did. And he found you, just like that shepherd in Luke chapter 15 that leaves the 99 sheep in the pen and goes out after that one lost sheep up on the mountainside. He pursued you and called you by name. His spirit opened your heart and breathed spiritual life into it. And God said to you, don't be afraid. I see you. I know you. I love you. I acknowledge you. You matter to me. I care about you. My heart goes out to you. I want to show you my chesed, my kindness, my free unmerited favor. And God, what else did he do? He restored your lost fortunes. He gave you eternal life and hope and joy and purpose and meaning. By the perfect life of Jesus... He declares you righteous by the blood shed on the cross. He forgave you your sins and set you free from condemnation. By his resurrection from the dead, he gave you a new kind of life. And now by his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he is praying for you every moment of every day, asking God to more and more conform you to his image. And God did all this, mind you. Not because you are some obedient, godly, holy person. No, it was because of the covenant that God made with his dear son to redeem you out of your lost estate and to bring you into his family. You're no longer an abandoned, forgotten orphan. The father has adopted you. He calls you his son or his daughter. 
It says in Ephesians 1.5 that you've been adopted. Ephesians 2.6 says that you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And one day, you will join all of God's redeemed people around the heavenly banquet table, not just some little dining room table, but the heavenly banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb and live forever in a glorified state with a glorified body upon the new earth where death will be no more. Nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things will have passed away. Hallelujah indeed. So you see, friends, this story is not just about a mangled man and a kind king, but a very gracious God. God's grace to us sinners is like David's grace to Mephibosheth, only far, far more. I want to tell you a story about a young woman that I'll call Jenny. That's not her real name. But I think this story kind of captures the spirit of 2 Samuel 9. Jenny had abusive parents. So at the age of five, the Department of Children and Families took her out of her home and placed her in a foster home. Only this man, this foster father, abused Jenny worse than her biological father had done. So she was taken out of that home and put in another foster home. These parents were Christians, but they were very legalistic Christians. Um, when Jenny did something wrong, they would make her write Bible verses over and over again. When she did something really, really bad, they would make Jenny memorize entire chapters of the Bible and recite them word for word or else she would be punished in some other way. They took her to the church every time the doors were open and just pushed upon her a very harsh kind of religion. Some of you perhaps have come out of that, that milieu, a legalistic frame of reference where God loves us because of what we do instead of who we are in Christ. That was the atmosphere that uh, she ate and drank of every day in this foster home of hers. So by the age of 12 or 13, as you might guess, Jenny was fed up with God. She didn't want any more of that kind of quote-unquote Christianity. She didn't want to follow a God who was mad at her all of the time, a God who made her feel as though she was nothing but a disappointment, somebody like Mephibosheth. One who scatters shame. And so, sadly, Jenny gave her body to every boy who came along. She turned to drugs and to alcohol. She spent many, many nights out on the street or in jail. And it looked like Jenny would just turn out to be another statistic, another disaster. Except for the fact that a young couple who I'll name Mark and Alice, again, not their real names, but Mark and Alice were looking for somebody to adopt. And to make a long story short, they were linked up with Jenny. They took her into their home, and they showed her chesed, kindness, the grace and the mercy and the unmerited favor of God. And Jenny started walking the long road to recovery. And she's still on the road. But she's making great progress. Because she is, for the first time in her life, 
experiencing the grace of the God of David. Now, I know this story because Mark, the adoptive father, is a friend of mine. I play racquetball with him three times a week. And one time he told me about his daughter, Jenny, and her story. So me being a pastor, I thought to Mark, I said, Mark, do you think that Jenny would want to visit with me sometime? I know she's got views about pastors, <laughs> but maybe I'll try to be a kind pastor. Um, you think Jenny would care to visit with me? And Mark said, I'll ask her. Well, a few days went by, and lo and behold, I got a phone call from Jenny. And Jenny, in a meek voice, said, I understand you know my dad. I'd like to come talk to you. So I'll never forget the day when Jenny walked into my study at church. And I just fell in love with her right away because I knew her story. And I looked into Jenny's eyes at one point after she told me a little bit of her background. And I said, Jenny, I want you to know that God loves you so much. And you need to know that too. You know, so many of us go through every single day wondering, am I really accepted by God? Is he really this good, good father we sang about earlier today? I don't know what a good father looks like. Is God my good father? I want you to know that he is. Because of this story right here, as well as every other story in the Bible, right? You who once had nothing, now have everything. You who once were not a people, are now the very people of God. You who often feel unworthy, and unwanted, and unholy, you are welcome at the king's table. So what do you do with this sermon? Well, it depends. It depends on who you are and where you are with God this morning. Let me speak to you if you're not a Christian. I sure hope that if you're not a Christian, you feel the warmth and love of this church family. Um, but if you're not a believer, this story is an invitation. An invitation to the only person in the universe who will really satisfy you with his love. You know, you're looking for love. I know it because I was there too at one point in my life. But if you're looking for it in the wrong places, it'll never really come through for you. And you're trying to matter. You're trying to matter, but if you're living apart from God, significance is really illusory. It won't last. So maybe the reason that you came this morning and maybe the reason God put this chapter and this story on my heart today is that God is speaking to you who are not believers. Stop living the way you're living. I'm calling you to live with me, to eat at my table and be my son or my daughter. Please don't say no to that invitation. Bring your brokenness your poverty, your failures, your mistakes, your disability to Jesus. Go to the king. Listen, he'll show you kindness. 
He will. Those of you are Christians. What does this sermon, what does this story mean for you? I think you might have heard this saying. It was, I think, penned originally by a man many of us admire named Tim Keller. He said that the gospel is not just for the lost. It's for the found. This good news that I've been sharing is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. You never come to a place in your life where you do not need to know that God loves you. (laughs) You need to know it every day and preach that to yourself every single day. God is inviting you and me who are believers into a kind of life in which you base everything on God's love for you. Not upon your expertise, your knowledge, your skill, your eloquence, your holiness, but upon the love of God where you live out of the gospel and believe the gospel instead of some other pretended source of significance and identity. See, I don't know about you, but I find this living out of my identity in Christ, living upon the gospel instead of upon some other pretended source of strength and significance, I find that to be one of the hardest things in my life to do, which is so odd, isn't it? I know up here how much God loves me. I've studied it. I know the Bible. I've preached it to others. I know it up here. But so often down here, I want to push my chair away from the king's table and go find some other table, some other place from which I can get my identity. Isn't that sad? Unbelievable that I would do that. See, it's a continual battle. But I'll tell you what I've found, that the more I believe the gospel and preach the good news to myself and remind myself of the love of God for me, the more I want to live for his glory instead of my own. The more I want to please him, the more I want to obey him, and the more I want to give God's chesed away to other people like David did to Mephibosheth. So, do you matter to God? (laughs) Listen to what God is saying in this chapter. You will always eat at my table, just like one of the king's sons. Believe that, Christian. Live out of that every day, and don't stop glorying in the love of God for you. Let's pray.